The Old Pilot's Plain Tales The Widowmakers A few aircraft have earned the dubious honour of being named a Widowmaker. One of the most notorious was the Martin B-26 Marauder, a twin-engine bomber used in the Second World War by the Army Air Corps. It was designed with a rather small wing area and, as a result, suffered from unusually high wing loading, making it prone to stalling, particularly on the approach, and requiring a rather high landing speed of around 130 miles an hour, pretty fast for aircraft of that era. Early versions were grounded after several accidents on takeoff, landing, and just taxiing around as the gear had a tendency to collapse. Some modifications were made, but as inexperienced pilots were put into the cockpits, the accident rate grew. Rumours abounded that the Marauder was impossible to fly on one engine, so Colonel Jimmy Doolittle flew a demonstration from MacDill Army Field, making the point by both taking off and landing on only one engine. In 1942, aviation pioneer and company founder Glenn L. Martin was called before the Truman Committee, which was investigating defence contract abuse. The then Senator, Harry S. Truman, asked Martin why the B-26 had issues. When Martin responded that the wings were too short, Truman curtly asked why the design had not been changed. Martin replied that the plans were too far along and, besides, his company already had the contract. Truman's pointed response was, in that case, the contract would be cancelled. Martin corrected the problem by adding an additional six feet to the wingspan, uprating the engines, adding more armour and larger guns. The Marauder gained other nicknames, such as the Martin Murderer, the Flying Coffin, and the Flying Prostitute, so named because it was fast and had no visible means of support, referring to its small wings. However, despite its bad reputation, the Ninth Air Force stated that it had the lowest combat loss rate of any U.S. aircraft used during the war. As difficult to fly and dangerous as this aircraft was, the one that usually springs to mind when the Widowmaker epitaph is quoted is the original rocket ship, the Lockheed F-104 Starfighter. A product of Kelly Johnson's prodigious and mostly secret hotbed of aircraft design, the Skunk Works, the 104 was the very first Mach 2 fighter. Johnson had visited North Korea during the Korean conflict to ask serving fighter pilots about the kind of fighter they wanted. At the time, the USAF was equipped with the North American F-86 Sabre, which was being pitted against the MiG-15. Although the Sabre was larger and more complex, many pilots felt that the MiG was superior. When engaging from above, the MiG definitely held the advantage, but once in a turning fight... The situation evened itself out. The Sabre could do better in an instantaneous turn, but the MiG did well in sustained manoeuvres and had a better climb performance. The MiG was also better armed, better armoured and more powerful. 
Kelly took away the feeling that the pilots wanted a small, simple aircraft with excellent performance. So armed, he returned to his smelly design hideaway and set about building a new generation of fighter. His team looked at many possible concepts, but to achieve the desired high performance, they chose a design that would have the best possible capabilities by wrapping the lightest, most aerodynamically efficient airframe possible around a single powerful engine. The engine they chose was the new General Electric J79, a turbojet of much improved performance in comparison with other contemporary designs. Around this engine they built a slim, sleek, lightweight fuselage that would give a fantastic power-to-weight ratio. Lockheed presented the design to the Air Force in 1952 and they were interested enough to create a general operations requirement for a lightweight fighter to replace the North American F-100. Although three other companies had competing designs, Lockheed had an insurmountable lead and were granted a development contract for two prototypes, named the XF-104. The airframes progressed faster than the new engine, so the initial version was powered by a licensed version of the Armstrong Sidley Sapphire built by Wright. This first flew on March the 4th, 1954, less than a year from when the contract was signed. The prototypes didn't fare particularly well. The first had gear retraction problems and the second was destroyed a few weeks later during a gun firing trial. However, based on the initial flights, the next variant, the YF-104, was built with a lengthened fuselage, modified landing gear and intakes, and with the remarkable J-79 engine. The design evolved, with the airframe being strengthened and the addition of a ventral fin and work on the J-79 afterburner, but eventually, in early 1958... The first F-104 was delivered to the 83rd Fighter Interceptor Wing. The aircraft looked fantastic. It was long and pencil-thin, with a long, sharp nose which jutted well in front of the cheek intakes and even further in front of the tiny wings. Whereas most jet fighters of this period used a swept or delta wing design, which gave a good compromise between aerodynamic performance, lift, and internal space for fuel and equipment, Kelly Johnson had gone in a different direction. He optimized his aircraft for supersonic flight, and having tested many shapes, he decided that the most efficient was a very small, straight, mid-mounted, trapezoidal wing. That is, one that has a straight leading edge swept to the rear and a straight trailing edge swept forwards. The new wing design was extremely thin, with a thickness to cord ratio of only 3.36% and an aspect ratio of 2.45. The wing's leading edges were so sharp a radius of 16 hundredths of an inch, which is less than half a millimetre, that they presented a cut hazard to the ground crew and protective guards had to be installed on the edges during maintenance. This was the sort of wing design that was being made for high-speed missiles since they operated almost exclusively in the supersonic speed range. 
The wing was so thin, only four inches, that's ten centimetres at its thickest point, it couldn't accommodate fuel tanks, landing gear or internal weapons, which all had to be located in the slim fuselage. The hydraulic cylinders that operated the ailerons were a mere one inch, 25 millimetres thick. A wing of this type was always going to present problems in the low speed range, and being so highly loaded, it gave the aircraft an uncomfortably high landing speed, even after installing both leading and trailing edge flaps. Lockheed even went as far as developing a boundary layer control system that blew high-pressure air over the trailing edge flaps to increase their efficiency and reduce landing speeds. This system, however, proved to be a maintenance nightmare in service and landing without it could be a harrowing experience. Mounted atop the single fin was the horizontal tail surface, being placed there to reduce inertia cross-coupling, a divergent effect that occurs when rapid rolling. Because the fin was only a little shorter than one of the wings, it could, when rudder was applied, cause a significant amount of lift, causing the aircraft to roll in the opposite direction to the rudder input. To counter this effect, the wings were canted downward, with a 10-degree anhedral. The fuselage was also designed with supersonic flight in mind. It had a small frontal area, a high fineness ratio, and within this slim tube was packed a great deal of essential equipment, such as the cockpit, a powerful cannon, all the fuel, the landing gear, the engine, the avionics, and the radar. The upside of this skinny design was that the aircraft produced very little drag. It had exceptional acceleration, a brilliant rate of climb, and a very potent top speed. The downside was that it had a poor sustained turn performance, and when it did try to turn hard, the lift-induced drag became very high. Despite its problems, it proved to be a capable record winner. It was the first operational fighter capable of sustained speeds of greater than Mach 2. It was the first aircraft to simultaneously hold the world speed record of 1,404 miles an hour and the altitude record of 91,243 feet, a record that the C model broke when it reached 103,389 feet. It held a multitude of climb-to-height records. For example, it could reach 39,400 feet in under 100 seconds. The 104 was given a potent new gun in the M61 Vulcan 20mm cannon, which could fire 100 rounds a second. A six-barrel Gatling gun, once the problem of feeding linked ammunition was cured, it became the mainstay of many aircraft and was subsequently fitted to a whole range of fighters. However, as other more capable aircraft made their appearance, the chances of a 104 being able to achieve a gun skill became less and less likely. As a result, the gun was removed to make way for more fuel, recce cameras, or just to save weight. The other main weapon was the AIM-9 missile, a stern aspect heat seeker. It wasn't a long-range weapon, which meant the 104 was going to have to get in close to its adversaries 
not an ideal situation for an aircraft with such a poor turn performance. However, much later on, some versions were fitted with the AIM-7 Sparrow, a beyond-visual-range radar-guided missile. Probably the most controversial aspect of the Starfighter's design was the pilot escape system. Concerned that an ejector seat might not clear the aircraft's T-tail, the initial versions used the Stanley C-1 seat, which fired the pilot downwards through a floor hatch. This obviously became a major hazard in low-level situations, and before long, 21 American pilots, including a test pilot, had been killed in low-altitude emergencies because of it. The C-1 seat was eventually replaced with a Lockheed C-2 seat, which fired upwards, but could only be used with at least 90 knots of forward speed to aid parachute deployment. Many export versions of the Starfighter were retrofitted with the Martin Baker Mark 700 seat. After only three months in service with the USAF, the 104 was grounded after a series of engine-related accidents and orders for the aircraft shrank from 722 to a mere 155, and after a year, these aircraft were handed over to Air National Guard units. Subsequently, the F-104C entered service with the Tactical Air Command as a multi-role fighter and fighter-bomber, and the aircraft did see service in Vietnam, although it engaged in little aerial combat and scored no air-to-air kills. It flew a total of 5,200 missions for the loss of nine aircraft. By 1967, all the USAF Starfighter units were re-equipped with the F-4 Phantom. Just as the 104 was falling out of favour with American units, it became the aircraft of choice for the German Air Force, which was looking for a multi-role combat aircraft. In addition, the aircraft was purchased by Canada, Italy, Norway, the Netherlands, Belgium, Denmark, Greece, Turkey, Spain, Taiwan and Japan. Many of these sales, however, were marred by a bribery scandal. The German Minister of Defence, Franz Josef Strauss, was accused of having received at least $10 million for West Germany's purchase of more than 900 starfighters, and the Prince Consort of the Netherlands was forced to resign from his position as the Inspector General of the Dutch Armed Forces for accepting a $1 million bribe. Other controversies occurred around Europe and in Japan. A Senate investigation revealed that the Lockheed Board had paid $22 million in bribes to foreign officials, and the scandal nearly brought Lockheed down. Although many air forces had their fair share of problems with the 104, it was the German Air Force that seemed to suffer the most. Eric Hartmann, the world's top-scoring fighter ace and commander of one of Germany's first post-war squadrons, even before the Starfighter's introduction, deemed the 104 to be an unsafe aircraft with poor handling characteristics for aerial combat and unfit for Luftwaffe use. The aircraft was undoubtedly a handful. 
Takeoff speeds were around 190 knots. It flew around the circuit or instrument pattern at over 200 knots and landed at an eye-watering 180 knots. And high power had to be maintained to keep the boundary layer control working. In addition, it commonly suffered engine failures on takeoff and afterburner blowouts. It could develop wingtip oscillations that in one case sheared a wing completely off. A spurious stick pusher activation at low level killed one pilot, so it was common for others just to turn it off. It had a problem with asymmetric flap deployment and nose wheel shimmy that was so severe it could flip the aircraft onto its back. This, combined with a less than perfect training regime, maintenance being conducted by conscripted military personnel, the poor German weather, and the demands of a low-level fighter-bomber role caused an appalling accident rate. The first crash occurred before the aircraft was a month old, and the bad start continued when, in June 1962, Four F-104s practicing for an introduction into service display crashed in formation, killing all four pilots. These were just some of the 292 German F-104s to crash. The German Navy lost 30% of its aircraft. 116 pilots died, and grieving widows sued Lockheed. More than 30 of them received 3 million Deutschmarks each. In 1966, Johannes Steinhoff took over command of the Luftwaffe and grounded the entire Luftwaffe and Bundesmarine F-104 fleet until he was satisfied that problems had been resolved or at least reduced. The damage, however, had been done. The starfighter was now being called the Widowmaker, but other countries had their own name for it. The Italians called it the Flying Coffin, and the Canadians, who crashed 46% of their inventory, named it the Lawn Dart or the Aluminium Death Tube. There was no doubt that the F-104 was a demanding aircraft to fly, but after a few years of hard-bought experience, the accident rates generally dropped to match other fighter types of the period, that were less maligned, but that was too late to save the aircraft's reputation. I, for one, though, always admired the sleek lines of an aircraft that seemed to be streaking along at Mach 2, even when parked on the flight line. For me, it was the original rocket ship, and I greatly admired it. If you enjoyed this story, please leave a review at Apple Podcasts. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.